So we're going to take an unusual look at the resurrection today, and it's going to be more like a journey, and I'm going to hit a certain number of things as we go. In fact, um, you might keep track of some of these things because we're going to talk about Genesis today. We're going to talk about gardens. We're going to talk about a disruption, signs, numbers. Uh, I'm going to talk about this thing called the new creation. I'm even going to throw in a little detail from the story of Bambi, and then um, we're going to talk about the importance of death being dead. So I hope you're ready for this because we're going to go on a little bit of a ride together today. Um, I want you to turn to John chapter 20. If you have a Bible, you can open that up um, because that's where we're going to land in just a few minutes. But first, what I want to do is rewind and go backwards. And, and here, here's why I want to do this. If you look at the resurrection and you just try to understand it from where it stands at a particular moment with with all of its implications, it would be like trying to, to start a movie in the middle and make sense of what's happening with all of the characters. You'll have all sorts of questions and, and certain things aren't going to make sense to you. So the story of the resurrection really um, begins back in the Old Testament and it begins in the book of Genesis. Now, um, most of you probably already know this, but um, it's in Genesis that we find the creation account. And we meet the creator God who speaks all things into being. Um, this God ushers order over a world of chaos. This God, he breathes life where there was no life. And suddenly there are plants and there are animals. And then there's this thing called humanity created in God's image. Now, like every good story, you, you know, there should be some sort of announcement that this is the beginning and, and something that anchors this. And it actually happens in Genesis chapter 2. It gives us a sense of where this whole thing is going. So in Genesis 2 verse 8, it says, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So this is where the story actually gets started in Genesis. And if you notice, this whole thing gets started in a garden. You're going to want to hold on to this idea of a garden for a little bit because um, this garden, when, when you look at this, it is depicted as this hub of life. Uh, it's the place of health. It's the place of growth. It's the place of wholeness. Or uh, as the ancient Hebrew people called it, it was the place of shalom. It was where everything was the way it was intended to be. This is the place where humanity can walk with God in the garden, can worship him freely. It's where people have full access to him. Life in the garden, it's light. It's, it's, it's free of burdens. It's not cumbersome. There's nothing missing. There's no worry of death or dying, and it's beautiful. That's how the story begins in a garden teeming with life. But then there's a disruption. And this disruption is something we're sort of familiar with. If you've ever gone to the beach, maybe when you were a kid and you decided to, to build a sandcastle and maybe you, you devoted yourself to it and you worked and you buried yourself in this, you, you spent all of your day forming and shaping. If you've ever done that before, maybe you've had that moment when you suddenly glanced off in the distance and you realized that the tide was rising and there was nothing you could do to stop it, that all of this work would eventually slowly erode away. 
that's what we're talking about with this disruption. There's a disruption, and it's like this wave that now comes in over the story, and it, it results in this defiance, and then there's this deception followed by the disintegration of everything that we had known before this. Uh, th- this wave that, that comes over everything, it, it's something that the biblical writers, they refer to as sin. It is human brokenness. And this human brokenness, this thing called sin, it becomes this scar that every human bears. Uh, it, it's, it mars our relationships. It, it mars our work. It, it impacts our health. Every day of every human life is impacted by this thing called sin. So in Genesis chapter 3, this story of beauty, this story of wholeness, it takes this, this radical 90-degree turn, and now there's labor, and there's suffering, and there's this thing called death. Life disintegrated. So this moment gets marked with an expulsion. Um, humanity is kicked out of the garden. They're kicked out of this beautiful whole place, and they're forced to live in what Steinbeck famously stole from the scriptures east of Eden. They live now in this place. And, and, and here's what's really interesting about this. This isn't just a story that we tell to explain a few things. This reality is hardwired into our DNA. It's hardwired into the human soul. All of us carry this sort of faint memory of a garden, a place where things are supposed to be a certain way. Like there's some place out there where things are right. And there's this sneaking suspicion that this place, that these things that we're experiencing are not the way it's supposed to be. So no matter how far away we get, we're always, always longing for this place. In fact, in the words of uh, the theologian Joni Mitchell, she says, we are golden, caught in the devil's bargain, and we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. It's always on the horizon. So behind every activist's agenda, behind every petitioner's passion, every, behind every person's pursuit of pleasure, a human happiness, whatever it is, there is this disintegrated need or desire for the garden, for wholeness in our lives. That is why seeing where this whole story begins is so incredibly important because there's a narrative arc to this whole thing and everything that follows. And this helps make sense of Jesus and it helps make sense of the resurrection. It opens our eyes to what's really going on. So now I want you to look at John chapter 20 with me and I want to talk about signs for a minute. We've talked about the creation. We've talked about Genesis. We've talked about the garden. And now let's talk about some signs. Um, by the way, if you're new joining us, for the past several weeks, we've been looking at the signs or the miracles of Jesus that John recorded in his gospel or his biography of Jesus's life. Uh, in fact, at one point at the end of John chapter 20, um, he even says that Jesus did a lot of these signs. He did all sorts of miracles, but these, I chose these specific to tell you, and I did it on purpose. Now, each one of these miracles has its own unique significance, and they're referred to as signs for a reason. Signs, as we've said before in this series, they point us in a particular direction. Signs, they're leading us somewhere. Um, when I'm on a highway, I'm on some sort of journey, it's signs that help me get to my destination. 
So first, I want you to understand that John writes a biography on the life of Jesus, and it's distinct from the other three biographies, the other three Gospels of Jesus. And one of the things that makes his so unique is that there are these signs which are intentionally chosen to lead us somewhere. That's the first thing. The the second thing I want you to understand is that these signs actually build. I mean, the, the first one, we go from turning water into wine, which we have to admit is pretty cool, but it doesn't compare to raising a man from the dead, which is downright amazing. Like, that's incredible. And so we see these miracles building as we move along. But I also want you to notice something else, a third thing, and and we're going to talk about numbers for just a moment. Of all of the miracles that Jesus performs, John chooses to only record a few of them. But it's not just about what he chose. It's also about how many he chose. How many did John actually record? Now, um, it's really important that we all understand that in Jewish thinking and in Hebrew literature, there's always meaning behind the meaning. This thing always points to that thing. There's always a double meaning, or frequently there is. Um, It's a very common practice in Hebrew literature, especially to use numbers to point to other things. Um, By the way, there are all sorts of examples of this all throughout the Bible. We don't have time to dive into these, but, but numbers are constantly being worked into the rhythm of the writing to offer some sort of double meaning, like the number one, when things stand out as a singular thing, it stands for unity. Three stands for stability. There's meaning behind the number 13 and 32 and 40, and you see these repeated themes throughout the scriptures. So in the Hebrew writing, they would, they would group things in certain orders to point or indicate something with these numbers. So how many miracles did John record? Well, if you count, there's seven. He turns the water into wine. He heals the nobleman's son in John chapter 4. There's the healing at the pool of Bethesda. He feeds the 5,000. He walks on water. He heals the man born blind. And then seventh, he raises a man from the dead. This is huge because seven in the Jewish consciousness is the number of perfection. It's also the number of completion, and it's associated primarily with one event in history, and that is creation. Seven is the number of creation. It's the number of the days in a week, but it's also the number that's associated with the creation story in Genesis. So any Jewish reader in the first century, who would be picking up the book of John and reading it, would have made this sort of connection. Seven days, one week, that's a reference to the seven days of creation. So these signs, when you take them as a whole, and John says they're pointing us somewhere, they're actually pointing us to creation. Seven miracles, seven days. But then something happens. Then there's an eighth miracle. And guess when it happens? I want to to read this with you. Um, But the crucifixion, where we're going to pick up, the crucifixion has taken place. The disciples are dismayed. They've scattered. They're trying to figure out what's going on in the world. The body of Jesus has been placed in a tomb. And then we read this in John chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. It says, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So when does John say this is happening? The first day 
of the week. Now, this is not an accidental detail that John includes in this. There's an eighth miracle that happens on the first day of a new week. It's the start, if you, if you follow this through, it's the start of a new week. So, so seven refers to the first week of creation. The eighth sign on the first day of a new week is pointing to the birth or the beginning of something new. This is the beginning of this thing we call the new creation. Which now, to those of you that have read the Bible before, you're probably thinking about all these places where, where we are referred to, or you hear references to this thing called the new creation, how we are new creatures in Christ, how uh, all of these phrases come together. Now it suddenly starts to make sense. In fact, once you begin to see this, once you begin to see this creation imagery, the garden imagery, you start to see it come to life everywhere in the book of John. I'm going to give you some examples. In the very next moment after what I just read, Peter and John, they go run back to the other disciples. They want to report that, that Jesus' body has been removed. And so, so they leave Mary there, and, and we read this in verse 11. It says, Now Mary stood in the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, the other at the feet. And they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Well, they've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around, and she saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. And he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I'll get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, rabbi. Now, do you notice who she mistook him for, and the detail that John includes. She mistook him for the gardener. There's this garden reference coming back. We have the creation, the seven days. We have the eighth day, this resurrection. He's mistaken as the gardener. Why do you think John is including this detail? Or, or how about this? If you go back to the very beginning of the book of John, he starts in a very particular way. Maybe you've noticed this. In John chapter 1, verse 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He actually starts his gospel with the exact same three words that the book of Genesis begins with, in the beginning. So anyone who had ever read Genesis would have picked up John and said, oh, I see what you did there. I see that this starts just like that started. Clearly, this is some sort of creation story. Everyone would have noticed the connection. In the beginning, God, the first creation. In the beginning was the Word, the new creation. Or, or check this one out. Um, you know, each of the Gospels records the final things that Jesus speaks in his final moments on the cross. But John records something very distinct. In verse 30 of John chapter 20, it says, When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. That phrase, it is finished, mirrors the words used in Genesis chapter 2 when the creation is complete. So John, he starts with in the beginning, and then towards the very end of this, at the crucifixion, he says, it is finished, it's done. These references to the creation. And now this week, this first week, seems to be over. He seems to be pointing to this. 
But by the way, it doesn't even end there. Um, Later on in John chapter 20, after the resurrection, on the first day of the new week, the one where he meets Mary, you have to see this. Um, Jesus goes and visits his disciples, and he's talking to them in this upper room, and this is what we read. It says this in verse 19. Again, he marks the time. On the evening of the first day of the week, this is the beginning of a new week, a beginning of a new creation, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And then in verse 21, it says, again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. This is such a strange moment until you see the garden and creation imagery come to life. Jesus tells them, I'm sending you in the same way that I've been sent. And then he literally, physically, he breathes on them and tells them to be filled with the Spirit. He, he blows his breath on them. And that breathing, it is this direct connection to God breathing life into Adam's lungs in Genesis chapter 2. You just see these images everywhere. He breathes and then says, receive the Spirit. Right after that, he says, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. With all of this, at some point you have to realize that this is way bigger than just some sort of casual statement like, hey, your sins are, are, are forgiven, have a nice day or have a nice rest of your life. All of this is speaking to this thing called the new creation. There's something major going on here. And Jesus doesn't just announce it. He actually includes his followers in making this new creation a reality. The, the resurrection is the inauguration of the new creation, and it is this invitation for you and I to live a new kind of life. That's what's happening here. The first seven days are done. That story's in the books, and now there is a new garden that is being made. And you remember the first garden. It's this hub of life and health and wholeness it's this place of shalom and growth. The garden is where humanity walks with its creator in friendship. There's a life and lightness to life in the garden. There's nothing missing and there's no worry of death. Jesus is announcing the return to the garden. The resurrection hope, it begins here it begins now. There is this whole new world right here in front of us, and it is fueled by and it is driven by the people of the new creation. So this resurrection, it liberates us to live a different kind of life because it changes everything. It changes everything we understand the world to be. I know I mentioned at the top that I was going to talk about Bambi, and I know that um, nobody expected Bambi on Easter, but here it is. Um, Maybe you already know this, but the Disney movie Bambi is actually based on a novel, and there's an interesting difference between the novel and the Disney movie. Uh, in the film, the animals, um, they come to view man as a sort of godlike personality because of his prowess as a, as a predator, as a hunter. But at the end of the novel that Bambi is based on, Bambi's father does something to change Bambi's perspective. In fact, he takes this young adult now, Bambi, um, into the woods, and there is in the woods the corpse of a hunter who was a poacher. And, um, and then you read this. He's, so he takes his son to see this person, this human, and he says, Do you see, Bambi, how he's lying there dead like one of us? 
Listen, Bambi, he isn't all powerful as they say. Everything that lives and grows doesn't come from him. He isn't above us. He's just the same as we are. He has the same fears, the same needs, and suffers in the same way. He can be killed like us, and then he lies helpless on the ground like all the rest of us as you see him now. Bambi is silent until his father asks, Do you understand me? I think so, Bambi whispers. Then speak, the old stag commands. And at this point, Bambi is inspired to say, There is another who is over us all, over us and over him. So in the novel, Bambi comes to this realization that there is another who is over all of us. There is another who is over him and over us. There's this awakening that we're reading about in this moment. There's this reality beyond reality that he's becoming aware of, and that changes everything. So I think we need to be honest about death for just a moment. Um, If the physical world that we can see and touch, the things that we can smell and hear, uh, if, if that is all that there is, then death is terrifying. Um, Death means it's over. Death means we lose all of it. No wonder in a physical world, no wonder death looms on the horizon. No wonder it strikes fear in our hearts when we think about it or or hear about it. Not only that, if if the physical world is all that there is, then we're going to scramble for substance in this physical world. We're going to try and build some kind of life out of what we can touch or, or, or see or what we can observe. We'll start obsessing about trying to, trying to own something or have something because this physical world that we're in is all that there is. And we will either bend to try to, to make it have some kind of meaning or we will determine that life is meaningless. So, so I guess you could say that if the physical is all that there is, th- then life might be just as terrifying as death. But what if there's more? I mean, we already know this scientifically. We already know that there are colors that the human eye can't take in. There are aspects of the spectrum of color that we can't see. There are decibels that we as human beings, we cannot hear. There are things in the universe that we can't see. We, we know that if we collected all the matter of the universe, it would fit inside of a teaspoon because the, the universe is made of energy. Our study of quantum physics in recent days, it leaves us with more questions than answers about what's happening in the world around us and how things are being held together. All of these things point to this question of, well, what if there's more? What if there's something beyond whatever this physical thing is in front of us? Well, that changes everything if the answer is that there is. And that is the hope of the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus is the greatest of all the signs because it points to the reality that this, this physical world that we can observe and touch isn't all that there is. There is another who is above us and beyond us. And so so that moment with Mary standing in the garden, Jesus makes his most bold proclamation. The greatest consequence in an entirely physical world is this thing called death. And death has been defeated. The old creation, it had a death problem, not the new one. There has been a death to death. 
And that is what allows human beings to become the people of the new creation. See, if the physical is all that there is, well, of course you're going to fight. And of course you're going to scrape. And of course you're going to dig your nails in. You're going to worry and you're going to stress. Of course you're going to try to make something out of nothing. You're going to try to find substance in something around you. But if it's not, if there has been a death to death, then you and I don't have to live like this is all that we've got. We are free to love. We're free to forgive. We're free to serve. We're free to sacrifice. Scarcity is eliminated. Greed eliminated. Selfishness eliminated because we understand this is not all that there is. All of that stuff is eradicated and we become the new humanity bringing this new creation to bear. That, that's what Jesus is getting at when he says, in the same way the Father sends me, I'm now sending you. It's like he's saying this, now that you see as I see, I want you to do as I do. And that's what John is getting at in his gospel. John writes what he writes the way that he writes it so that you and I can enter into this reality in fact, at the end of, of chapter 20, John says this, verse 31. I, I referenced this earlier, but he says, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. He wrote so that we would have life in the here and now. He wrote so that you and I could feel free so that we could feel light. He invites us to be a part of this new humanity. He invites us to walk in the cool of the garden. That's what he's doing, bringing us back to this place. So I, I don't know where you are today. Um, in fact, I usually say that figuratively, but today I actually um, am speaking physically as well. I don't know where you are today, where you're watching this from but I also don't know where you are as it relates to the faith spectrum and, and where you relate to God. I don't know if you've fully embraced the reality of what we're talking about today or if you're still exploring and wondering, but, but here's what I do know. There has never been a time in which the reality of what John is showing has been more poignant you can almost hear in this season our souls saying to us, now that all the normal patterns of life have been taken, now that all the places of security are, are crumbling and shaking around us, you can almost hear our soul saying to us, like, you tried to build substance out of that? See, the physical world is not the content of life. It's the context of life. The content of real life is found in Jesus and the resurrection. And that can be lived in any context, any time, any place, anywhere. So we're going to do something a little different. We're going to close with a song. And I just want to offer you a time to reflect, a time for you to think, a time for you to maybe even pray and just ask questions about what all of this means. For some of you, maybe you've already believed but maybe you haven't really lived like it for a while. Maybe you haven't been entering into the new creation and living like the new humanity. And for others of you, maybe you've never believed, but now you find yourself standing in a garden and you see, you see who Jesus is and what he's all about. And it's time for you to say yes to following him. So I want you to just take some time and I want you to consider what all of this means for you today. And at the end of this song, I'll come back and leave us with a benediction.
death and resurrection In every single scene You know, I love the final words of this song. Now I see the redemption growing in the trees, the death and resurrection in every single seed. There is new life available to every single one of us. When you see where these signs are pointing and when you choose to believe, you will experience the life that John was talking about in chapter 20, verse 31. So I want to offer this to you today as you head into the rest of this day. May you see that there has been a death to death and there is a life to be lived. May you hear the invitation to walk in the garden and may you say yes to Jesus. May your heart swell with belief in this moment and may you be filled with the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in his name. Amen.